0: as we jump in. If you have a Bible, go to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Chapter 56 is where we're going to be. I want to tell you, it's so good to be back with you all. I missed being here last Sunday. I I don't know if anyone explained where I was last week or you just thought I was missing, but it was a really cool opportunity. I had the privilege of taking some of the leadership material that we've developed here at this church for leadership development and teaching it to a group of uh, evangelical covenant pastors in Northern California. Now, the funny thing about this was these were all Latino pastors, so everything that I taught had to be translated. So my friend Abraham and I spent six hours on a stage on Sunday, and I would speak a sentence, and then he would tell them what I was really trying to say. Um, it, it was a an incredible learning experience, and I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But I want to tell you, first of all, about the flight to actually get to San Francisco, because that was the real adventure for me. Um, I don't know if you remember, but a couple Sundays ago, I had this voice thing going on that may come back. I got a little fired up preaching, believe it or not, and my voice started to go. So when I, when I walked out of church, my voice was kind of that cough thing that I hear it in the room, and you guys are still passing it around. Thank you um, for that. And so I get on the plane, and I fly out of Clarksburg. I love flying out of Clarksburg because I don't have to pay for parking, and it's easy and all that stuff. But I had to go to D.C. and then to San Francisco. So it's about a, an hour-long flight from Clarksburg to D.C. So I get on the plane, and I sit down, and it's kind of an empty flight. Nobody really flies out of D.C., but there is somebody sitting right in front of me. And I'm, I, I've got that cough, that leftover thing. Been on medicine, you know, all that stuff. Well, about 20 minutes into the flight, I, I've been coughing off and on, and out of nowhere... This guy who's sitting in front of me bellows, like bellows, cover your mouth. Yeah, that's what I did. I was like, who's he yelling at? Like, that's, that's literally what was in my head. And without, like, without, when it sat in, settled in that he was talking, like yelling at me, I, I was embarrassed because there were, like, he was loud enough that the other people heard it. And all I could do was be like, I am. Like, pro, like I didn't know what to do. So I called Carrie, and I told her this story, and the very first thing she said to me, she goes, were you not covering your mouth? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was like, yes, I was covering my mouth. I, yes, we all have bad habits, but I've been on the plane where the kids are coughing, and they're breathing, and it's gross, and you guys have been there, and I, I understand. Of course, I covered my mouth, but this guy, and let me just tell you, he was like 180 years old. He was so old. <laughs> he does it again. Like I, 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 At that point, I was like, eh. like trying to hide it and he yells it again he goes cover your mouth and that time like all my spirituality went out the door like it was it parachuted out of the plane and I was like I said I am (laughs) and I communicated as non-verbally as I could he didn't even look he had no idea whether I was covering my mouth I promise I was covering my mouth but non-verbally I was like punching him in the head like and I just, I wanted him to know. I wasn't shocked anymore. I'd like to tell you there was a spiritual moment, and I led him to Jesus. I did it. Like, I also did not cuss at him, and that was a, that was a win. And, but I spent the rest of the flight trying to figure out, like, how do I respond to this awkward situation that we now have 30 minutes left? Praise God. It's not the flight to San Francisco. That would be five hours of awkward. And I don't, and, and I thought, like, should I get off the plane and, like, push him in his seat and be like, sorry, I didn't want to cough on you on the way out? Like, I didn't know what to do, and instead, I just sat in my seat and tried as hard as I could to let him know I was tough and strong, and I'll just tell you, it was the weirdest, angriest, most frustrating, and isolating journey I've ever had on a plane, now, I left that flight, and I spent the next day and a half very spiritually, <laughs> so I kind of got my pastor stuff back, right? Like, I, I, I spent time teaching this leadership material, and it was amazing, like working with a translator and getting to experience this different culture and hearing their struggles, the, the Latino pastors in, in California and how they're um, working through things and, and what that's like. But I got to tell you, the, the translator, he looked at me before we went up on stage, and he, I said how do you, like, I acted like a professional, I was like, how do you do this, do you want me to give you, like, two sentences, or a paragraph, and then pause? like, he's like, just go, and I said, what do you mean, he said, just go, I can do it simultaneously, and I was like, okay, and, and I'm thinking, no, you can't, like, nobody can do that, so I started speaking, and he just went, like, and I froze, I, I got, like, my first three sentences out, and I was like, that's amazing, how do you do that, and, and he's like, no, no, keep going, and so we did, and about five minutes in, many of you will be happy about this, a couple of the participants in the sessions raised their hands and they were like, can you slow down, both of you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, my mom back home tells me to slow down, that I preach too fast all the time. And it was, it was just such a cool thing. So we, pre- we, we taught for six hours on Saturday. I got to preach in this church on Sunday. The pastor interpreted everything they were saying, the whole service. It was awesome. And then that afternoon I left and I got to kind of just walk around San Francisco and be downtown. And, and I got to tell you, I, I was just blown away in this kind of an encounter with God, just going, God, thank you that your world is so big. Thank you that the kingdom of God doesn't look just like me. It doesn't sound just like me. It was amazing to be a part of that. Now, here's my thought for you today. I wonder at times if many of us are living our faith in Jesus like the old guy on the plate. Here's what I mean by that. I wonder if our world is too small for Jesus. At time. See that that guy on the plane wanted no part of me to touch him. Like like I, that was very clear, and, and I get that. I understand it now from a distance and from settling down. I like I, you know I I've, I'm I've spiritualized it now. Maybe he was scared of getting sick. Maybe there was some stuff going on that I didn't know about. But but the reality was in that moment, he had no perception of what the what what was really taking place, and he wanted he wanted the world to be his. His world was small, and he was the king of it. See, he had a perception of what was happening, and there was no interpretation that would change his mind. He didn't even look to see if I actually was covering my mouth. I promise I was. But he didn't care. He had an assumption about this reality, and he was convinced that that's the way it should be. Now, I say that because so many of us, I think, do our faith the same way. So many of us have a faith in God that is based completely on our perceptions of the world around us we worship god the same way from our perspective from our own assumptions our own standards expecting god to fit in our little seat without getting the germs of the world all over us and next week we're, we're starting this new series called the comeback and and i'm so excited this is gonna be the best series we've ever done until the next series and then that's going to be the net best series we've, we've ever done this series is going to take us all the way to Easter, And it's a series about grace. It's a series about rescue and forgiveness. And it's a series about underdogs finding a new story. And, and you know what? I, you and I know people that I believe in the next maybe seven to eight weeks as we lead up to Easter will actually be more open to you inviting them to church than they've ever been in their life. For whatever reason, this season seems to cause people who are far from Jesus to say, yeah, I might, I might check that out. We're going we're to tailor this season just for that. So every Sunday is going to be opportunities for people to hear about Jesus. We're going to do an egg hunt at, at the high school where we're going to have 10,000 eggs scattered throughout, and it's going to be mass chaos. If you've never been a part of it, you need to come. You need to sign up to volunteer. We, we want you to be a part of this because this season is all about helping people get closer to Jesus, and we're going to watch that happen. I believe it. We're going to see people's lives change, but I think today we have to set the stage, set the the season up well. We have to understand what God maybe wants to do. We have to take some time today, and and I believe even do a bit of a gut check, because here's what I know. In this season, someone might cough all over you, and some of you are like, yeah, they've been doing it since we got in church. I I don't mean physically. I, I mean spiritually. Someone might brush up against you that you're a little bit Uncomfortable with. See, I think that God wants to maybe shake some things loose in us so that we don't get a little grouchy about what God wants to do around us. Have you ever had that experience? You ever had God start working in somebody's life and you were like, well, just just go over to another church and work there. Like, I'd just rather you didn't work in this person. I'm comfortable not liking this person. Like, I have, he's my nemesis, right? Like, if there was a comic book, he'd be in the black spandex and we we were enemies like we're just you ever had that ever had that experience where you just recognize there are people that you are a little bit uncomfortable with if god started to do something in their lives and if you're honest about it i think at times we wish someone else would lead them to jesus we'd be okay if they met jesus we just wish maybe it was another ministry or another church but but this is what i want to say to you today it's those people it's the uncomfortable ones that i believe we're called to Because God grows our faith in that process. And today I want to set the scene so that when those folks start showing up, we're not acting like the crotchety guy in the seat going, stop coughing on me. I want us to understand what God wants to do. See, there's this passage in the Old Testament, and if you read much of the Old Testament, you'll find that it's, some of it's hard, it's complex, and, and the book of Isaiah is like that. The book of Isaiah is long. It's 66 whole chapters, and it's what's called a prophetic book, right? And so the, the prophecies of Isaiah are, are letters and poems and stories from God to his people, the Israelites. But in these letters, in these poems, in these stories, God often is speaking directly to people's lives and laying out for them things that he's either going to do, he's about to do, or things that he has done that they've missed, and he's kind of confronting them and saying, this is where we are. So Isaiah, really the first half of the book, is full of just hard truth. Some of you are truth people. You like when I preach about judgment, like, like, yeah, let's walk out of church feeling bad. That's what we want. Like, you're truth people. And some of you are grace people. You don't like those messages. You're like, what about God's love? Like He how He loves us. Let's sing that. See, in Isaiah, we get both because in Isaiah, God calls out, and he he really starts by looking at the people that have oppressed Israel, the the people that have attacked and caused injustice towards Israel. And and he starts confronting these nations. If you read the book of Isaiah, you'll see subtitles about God's judgment on Moab, Babylon, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Tyre. And then there's this whole chapter, and in my Bible, the title is this, God's Destruction of the Whole Earth. Doesn't that sound like a movie? Like it's just, here we go. And I think the Israelites love this. I think if the Israelites had been through what they'd been through, the suffering, being ripped out of their land, placed in foreign territory to live, that they're going, finally, God's going to show up. He's going to do something. I like this. It's kind of like God showing up on the plane when that guy's yelling at me, going, don't worry, Justin, I got it. I thought about that. I thought about being like, Jesus is sitting beside me. Would you like for him to cough on you? Because we... But see, that's the first half of Isaiah. Then you get to the second half of Isaiah, and it's more about God's comfort and mercy and redemption and salvation. And the Israelites like this too because God had confronted them in the first half as well. He had called out their sins. But then in the second half, he's speaking about hope and salvation. And that's, that's what I want to look at today is a passage in Isaiah 56 where God looks at the Israelites. And I think at this point, the Israelites are going, you've comforted us. Now, what are you going to do to those other nations? They've they've caused us to suffer. Surely, God, you're going to blow them off the planet. And God starts to unravel their expectations. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 56. Here's what it says. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Now, just pause there because I want you to think about something. Some of you are here and maybe you're not, you're not following Jesus yet. You're just checking us out. You're not sure you want to believe in Jesus. Love that. I love that you're here and you're exploring your faith. Like, cool, and, and take your time. But some of you, many of you maybe grew up in a religious setting. You grew up in a Christian setting. And when they talked about salvation in those settings salvation was about evacuation of the earth. Like someday you're going to die and you got to get to heaven. That's what salvation is about. So you prayed that prayer at the revival or Sunday school or vacation Bible school or church camp, or you did it like 12 times at all of those places because you heard the preacher say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to die. You're going to burn and you got to get to heaven. And that's what salvation meant for you. While I believe Salvation is at least about eternal life, partly the Jews. That would not have been their first understanding. And for you to fully grasp what scripture is about, we have to get this. Because when the Jewish people heard prophecies of God's salvation, what they immediately thought of was, God's going to rescue us right here and right now. They would have imagined, they would have perceived that God's saying, my salvation is close at hand. They thought, oh, this isn't about heaven someday. This is about God showing up right now. He's saying he's coming soon. And then it says, My righteousness will soon be revealed. And I think they thought, well, what does righteousness look like? All right, when I was on that plane, I thought, what does righteousness look like? Like I, I had to make be like Jesus and spit and make mud and throw it at. Like, that's what I thought righteousness. And I think the Jewish people thought that way. All these nations have oppressed us, right? They've come after us. Righteousness will be God getting rid of them. But God, like he does, always messes with our expectations. In verse 3, he begins to paint a picture of what this righteousness looks like for his people. Look at this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord. Now, that's a foreigner who says, I want to know God. He says, let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Now, just pause, because the Jewish mentality was this. If you were a foreigner, you didn't belong to God's people. God had looked at an 80-mile-long, 30-mile-wide stretch of of the world named Israel and said, you are my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And all those other nations, they might get blessed someday, but not while I have you. But here God's painting a picture. He says, let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say that God's going to exclude me. And then, and, and this gets a little awkward, he said, let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. Now, you need to understand this. Right In this cultural, cultural setting, the eunuch was a person who was a servant, a slave, who had been captured, often harvested from the boys, from the sons of slaves. And they were made into servants, and they were castrated. They could no longer reproduce. And so he says, let the eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. So these Israelites are waiting, saying, what's God' righteousness look like? We can't wait to hear this. And God starts talking about foreigners and eunuchs? What is going on? One second century scholar said a eunuch was neither man nor woman, but something composite. Now listen, hybrid and monstrous outside of human nature. There was a stigma. There was a stereotype to the foreigners and the eunuchs, and they were pushed aside. And the people of God said, you don't belong to us. And God says, no, no. Let no foreigner say that they're excluded from my people. Let no eunuch say that they're, they're dried up. See, this, this was a picture of left outs and dried up and unfruitful people. God is beginning to paint the picture of righteousness saying, it starts with people that have been cast aside. It starts with people that have been forgotten. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says this, for this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them, now watch this, I will give within my temple. Everybody say within. Within is so important here. I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Now, this is such a beautiful portrait because of the two words I don't want you to miss. The first is this. God says, I will give them within my temple. Temple. Now just hold up because the temple is a place of holiness for the Jewish people. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It was a place where you understood that the closer you got to the presence of God, the holier you had to be. So you could go to certain areas of the temple. If you were a female, if you were a foreigner, you could enter the outer courts, but you couldn't enter the inner courts. If you were a Jewish male, you could begin to enter the inner courts. If you were a priest, you could enter the holy places. If you were the high priest, you could enter the holiest of holy places. And God looks at these people and he says, listen, I'm going to give these left outs, these abandoned people, a place within my temple. They're going to step on the places that you think belong only to you. They're going to belong. And then he presses further. He says, not only are they going to belong, but I'm going to give them an assigned seat. They're going to have their own pew. They're going to have a spot in the church that's theirs. And I joked when we moved in here, because he says, they're going to get a memorial, a monument. And I joked when we moved in here that anybody that helped move the chairs with us would get a plaque on the back of their seat. I, we, we didn't do that, and you didn't take me up on it. I appreciate that. But wouldn't it be cool if somebody came to us and said, hey, I've got the resources, and I'm going to buy this building for you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Everybody say yes. That would be awesome. Okay? If you're new, that would be awesome. If you have those resources, we'll, we'll work out a deal. Like, but you know what I, I I found? The more I'm around people who actually have those types of resources, they're, they're, not, they're not looking for plaques and honors. They're looking for a legacy. They're looking to leave something behind. They're looking to pass something on to the people after them. The folks, folks that I've actually spent time with who have great means, the most amazing ones, they don't flaunt their resources because they're more concerned with the legacy they're leaving behind. This passage is so raw for a eunuch. They had no ability to leave a history. They would be forgotten, literally. They would be a people who were forgotten. And God speaks to them and says, you're going to belong in my house, but you're going to have a monument and a memorial that's better than sons and daughters. Can you imagine? You're going to have something, God says, that I'll give you that's better than sons and daughters. Don't miss this. For the Israelites hearing this, God is speaking promises of righteousness, watch, to their enemies. He's not talking about their hopelessness. He's speaking about their oppressor's hopelessness. And he goes on in verse 6. He says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. This is what he says. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Now listen, the Jewish people knew what the holy mountain was, right? This wasn't just some nice picture in a hymn. This was a real place. This was the place where when God rescued the Israelites... He said to Moses, come up on my mountain and I will give you the law. And he said to the Israelites, stay down at the bottom because it's too holy for you up here. And so Moses went up, Moses received the law, the first five books of the Bible. He brought it back down and the people had to watch from a distance because they couldn't go to the place. And God now says, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the Jewish people understood we had the holy mountain. God gave us the law on the mountain, but only Moses could go up there. And now God's saying, wait a minute, I want to redo it. I want to change it. I want to build a big house on top of the mountain. I want to invite everybody up. You guys, come on up. And get all the nations with you. All those people you hate, that guy that you coughed on on the plane, bring him up too, because we're going to have a party. It's a house of prayer for all nations. So what does this mean for you? Why are we talking about this? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. In my house, uh, one of the conversations that Carrie and I have regularly with our daughters, like if they, if they were to come in here, we would, we would talk about this and they would roll their eyes. It's one of those conversations, okay? We talk a lot about the type of house that we want to create, the type of house that we want to we build. When, when our girls fight, we'll talk to them about being a safe place, For each other. We'll talk about how the fact is they're gonna go through life getting criticized from lots of people outside of our house. That's gonna happen. They're gonna face judgment. They're gonna face assumptions. They're gonna face those things. And we'll talk about when you come in this house, this house should be safe. This house should be a place where you are encouraging each other, where you're building each other up. And we'll talk about the values of that house and the kind of house that we wanna create things we want to give our energy to and our prayer as their parents is that we're building some kind of house of values in their lives that they will grow into as women, as daughters, as sisters, that they will say, this is who we are. In this passage that we've read, this Old Testament passage where God is kind of unraveling the Israelites' expectations, when God describes a house of prayer for all the nations, I think he's showing us as his people the kind of houses he wants to build when we're together. I think he's giving us a framework to say when you gather as fellow believers, when you gather as a people who are called by God, who are adopted by God, who are loved by God, this is the house that you need to build. We've been talking about this idea of being uncontainable, that God is uncontainable, that he doesn't live just in our church buildings, that he doesn't live just in our assumptions. And and I want to say to you that I think one of the boxes that we try to place on God more than any other is a box filled with our perceptions of other people. Like, aren't we really good at judging people? Like, I think that I have that spiritual gift, like, of being judgmental. Some of you are like, yeah, me too. It's not real. It's not a real gift, right? But we're really good at it. Like, I can walk into a restaurant and sit down and within 30 seconds have an assumption and a judgment of every person around me. Aren't we good at that? Three of you are nodding. The rest of you are like, no, I'm holy. Okay. See, I'm judging you. Look at that. Like, it's so good, right? Right? And see, when we do that, when we have these perceptions of other people, when we have people that we write off, our arch nemesis, those people that we go, eh, I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can lead you to Jesus, because eh, that's the limitation that we place on God. And see, our perception of people limits the work of God that we actually see around us. When we put those boxes on people, we miss what God wants to do in their lives, but also in our lives. And so today, in, in the time that we have left, I want to give you about five things that I think frame the house that God wants to build. And, and you can take this. If you're, if you're like a, a committed partner of new community and you're a leader, you're serving in ministry, and you're saying, this is, this is who we are, you can take these as the things that I would say, man, if we were doing a leadership training, these are the things we'd talk about. Don't miss it. And if you're here and you're just checking it out and you're kind of going, I don't, what are, what are they about? This is what we want to be about. These are the things that I think should define who we are. Here, here's the first thing. I believe we should be a place for the left-outs and the dried-up. I believe that's what it means to be the church. I believe that that's what God has for us. I wonder if we've invited the cast-asides to encounter Jesus because, you know, in our community, it's not hard to find left-out people. It's not hard to find people who are judged repeatedly. It's not hard to find people who feel dried up. Physically, they may not be eunuchs, but they sure feel like they have no ability to be fruitful in life. Some of you sitting here may feel that way. And I want us to be that place. You know know what I think? A lot of times if if you're challenged to invite people to church or, or, or to share the gospel, a lot of us are really good at doing that with people who are just good Christians, but they go to other places. Like you hear them and they're like, well, my church, I'm not real happy with. Oh, I can share Jesus with them. And we get the gypsy Christians, right? Like they're just constantly moving from place to place until I take them off and then they're going somewhere else. And, and what I'm saying is there are left outs and cast asides that none of us are reaching to. It's a big investment because it demands that we go all in. Jesus told a story about this. He told a story of a guy who, who threw a huge party and he said, I want to invite all the people, all the right people to get the people there. And his servant goes out and invites them, and all the right people start saying, well, I'm kind of busy. I got a farm. I got to take care of my oxen. Sounds a little like West Virginia. I got to sign my kids up for 12 sports. I can't make it. Like, I, I've got all this stuff going on. I can't come. And the servant returns and tells the man who's throwing the party. And he says, then go to the streets. And he says, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the beggars, because they will come to a party because they've never been invited to a party. And the baffling part to me is the servant comes back and says, there's still more room. They're here, but there's still more room. And he says, go to the streets and compel them. Just tell them all. I wonder how often our faith sits in our hearts like that, going, man, we've got the best party in the world. We've got life. We've got hope. And we need to find the left outs and the the dried up and help them find this place. That's the place we want to be. Second place is this. I, I think we're trying to build a house that's a place to belong. Right? It's a place to belong. Now, here's what I mean by this. I would love if we became consumed with helping people belong even before they believe. Right? People want to belong before they believe something. Now, for a long time, and I think this has shifted in the past 30 or 40 years of church world, right? It used to be that when you walked into a church, you had to believe what they believed before you could belong to who they were. And so you had this this doctrinal statement and you had all this stuff and all these programs and you, you had to believe those things before you could belong. People today see through that facade and they want nothing to do with the church until they know they can belong to the church. They want to find a place to belong. And in belonging, when they start to feel like, you know what, you have made me belong here. You have adopted us in. We have found a place in this community that we belong to. I was lonely. I was lost. I was in need, and I have found community. Then they go, I believe what you believe. You made me belong, and I believe it. See, that's the shift that's taking place. So in this church, listen, it's so important, number one, that as you serve, that you're getting connected to this church, that you're jumping in. And for those of you who are serving, who are leading, who are working in ministry areas, you have got to become consumed with helping someone else belong to what you're doing. And I'm going to tell you this is as countercultural West Virginian as you can get. Some of you don't get it yet. I'm going to explain it to you. How many of you find it super easy to ask someone to come and help you with what you're doing? Yeah, that's what I thought. Couple of you. It is a West Virginia value, unspoken, to say, I don't want to bother anyone. I'm just going to work hard on my own. i got to get this done. Hard work. Hard work shows I love Jesus. (laughs) Nope, grace shows you love Jesus. That's the way that works. And at times in our churches, we're creating a culture that's unspoken where there's a group of people doing a lot of work and wondering why other people aren't helping and serving. And there's a group of people in the chairs going, I don't think they need me. I don't think they really need my help. I think that I'm just kind of here and I love the service and that's great. But, man, I wish I could do more. I wish I could give. And we have created a wall that we've helped not helping people belong. And we need to do that. We need to just become consumed with that. That was a separate sermon, free um, you can give more in the offering if you want. Number three, <clears throat> I think we need to build a place of purpose and destiny. Now I know those are buzzwords, right? Like I could sell a book if I wrote purpose and destiny on it. But, but here's the reality. When God says to the eunuchs, I'm going to give you a memorial better than sons and daughters. That's not just a figure of speech. God actually believes that what he's about to give them when they belong to his purpose is better than anything they've ever imagined. I want to show you a picture. Go ahead and bring that up. This is from the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And those images are people that died in the concentration camps. There are, there's another memorial in this museum of just shoes of children that were killed in the concentration camps. Now let me tell you, the word in that verse, a memorial better than sons and daughters, is actually the phrase in Hebrew, Yad Vashem. Everybody say, Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. It means monument and a name. The name of this memorial is Yad Vashem. It is a picture of people that were forgotten that the people who built the museum said, we will not forget you. And God says, what I'm going to give to you when you belong to the community of God, no matter if you're left out, no matter if you're not producing fruit, no matter if you're dried up, cast aside, abandoned, forgotten, it's Yad Vashem. I'm going to give you a monument and a name because I'm not finished with you. You're not worthless. You're not devalued. You're not too broken to be beyond my kingdom. You actually have meaning. You have destiny. You have purpose and imagination. And I can't wait to see you live into it. So if you're here, And you're in a place where you'd say, you know what, I feel left out, I feel dried up. That divorce hurt too bad. I don't know if God wants anything to do with me. That loss, the grief that I feel is too painful. The wounds that I carry, the abuse that that has been committed against me, I feel too hurt by that. I believe that the one thing God might want to say to you today is simply this, you're not finished. Can somebody amen that because we believe that here? You're not finished. This church doesn't believe that anybody's finished. If you're breathing, God still has purpose for you. He doesn't want to just redeem you. He wants to repurpose you. God doesn't just remember you. God redeems you and rescues you and sends you back out into the world. I can't think of anything better than that. I've got another point, but that's the best one. God gives us imagination that opens up potential that we've never dreamed about. Here's the fourth thing. I, I think God wants us to build a place of joy. I know it's like, really, like joy? Yeah, yeah, he wants us to be joyful. I, some of you look like you walk in here on Sunday mornings and you're just hanging on. How are you doing? Okay. Really? Is it that bad? Maybe it is. I don't know. But you know what I found? Psalm 84 verse 10, the writer says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere better is one day, God, in your courts than God, I long to get to that place. God, I long to worship you. I long to be in the presence of you and the other believers around you. And then he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. You know who the happiest people at New Community are? I'm just going to tell you. It's the greeters. They're like crazy, weird, happy, aren't they? They're awesome. Like give them a hand. They're amazing, right? And I think they get it. I think they get it because when you start to spend your life holding the door open for other people, you start to go, you know, my problems aren't that bad. Like, look at the joy that I found. Look at what it means to hold the door open for the house of God. Literally, the greeters get to hold the door open and watch people walk in and encounter the Savior of the universe. That doesn't bring us joy. We're missing something. We're building a place of joy. Here's the last one. I think we're called to build a place for all nations. It's a place where God brings every person, every culture together, every type of person, every existence of humanity together and says the church has always been a place where the bigness of the world is brought to reality through the intimacy of God. See, what I recognized last week is I was standing on a stage communicating things about leadership and leadership development, and the translators communicating in a way that 70 other pastors are picking up that I could never communicate with them, that I'm going, God, your world is so big, and I'm so small, and you love me so intimately. See, God has always been about a place for all the nations. See, the church at its best, and some of you need to be pushed in this, the church at its best has always, always, always been multicultural. It's always been a beautiful mosaic of believers. It's always been a place where we worship beside ethnicities and cultural groups and people that are not like us. Because you know what happens when you see someone experience God and they're not like you? You start to go, wow, God's not like me. Like God's bigger than my box. God's different than the way that I uh, assumed him to be. And that's what it's all about, that we would long for the nations to be brought to salvation So here's the question as I start to wind down. Here's the question that I would ask. What happens if we build the wrong type of house? See, I don't don't know if you know this or not. This this is a sermon about building a culture of a church, right? Building a culture of the kingdom of God. Every place you walk into over the course of the week has a culture. Okay, how many of you love going to Chick-fil-A? It's passion, right? Like, you don't have to hide that. Like, Chick-fil-A, Jesus created and then Chick-fil-A came. Like, that's the way, we love that. Now watch this. How many of you love going to Walmart? Vis- visceral groans, right? Usually there's visceral groans. It's because both of those places, listen, they have culture. Chick-fil-A has defined their culture intentionally. I manage a Chick-fil-A. They do a good job of training people. Walmart has unintentionally watched a culture create. Nobody goes, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to go get a job Walmart. This is awesome. <laughs> Here we go. There's an unspoken culture that exists, right? Here's the reality. We either define our culture or the culture starts to happen without us defining it. And as a church, this is the culture that we want to define. So what happens if we don't do this? I think we see this in Jesus. Jesus walks into the temple one day, right? He sees what's taking place. He flips the tables over and he says to the people, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. He says, you've built something that is stealing from the people that God wants to give to. You're ripping away from people everything that God wants to pour out on them. What do we do if we don't build this kind of church, if we don't become this kind of place? We're stealing people's opportunity to belong. If the opportunity to share Jesus with someone doesn't exist in you because you simply don't like that person, you have stolen from them the opportunity to belong to the kingdom of God. You've stolen from them their purpose in Christ. You've stolen from them their joy. You've stolen from them an invitation to the nations. If you have prejudice about other countries, about other nations, about other people groups, you are stealing something that God wants to pour out on them. We have to understand this. This is the reality. And I say all this today because my prayer as we enter this Easter season is that our house would get really big. The last verse of Isaiah 56 says this, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. I I think, I don't want to be critical of other churches and I I want to criticize us, but I think all churches need to hear this. There are empty chairs in churches because we've limited God, not because God is limited. Say, I want you to understand that. Like God is going to, God has a plan, God has a mission. God will bring people to himself, whether the church stands in the way or not. See, there's there's a great writer, uh, Brendan Manning, and he said the greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians, (laughs) that we have stood in the way of people coming to God. And church, as your leader, as your pastor, I will repent publicly if we get in the way of people coming to Christ. I don't want to do that. I want to do anything short of sin to see people come to Christ. I want us to be so consumed when we look out in our community on Sundays and people are not hearing about Jesus. I don't want us to miss that. See, God says, my house, it's going to keep getting bigger because it's never finished. How many of you know, like guys, your house is never finished? Amen. It's never done. I think it's done. I think that the list is finished. And then there's something new. There's a new picture that we need or a new light that needs hung. Are, are you with me? I know you're too scared to admit it because she's sitting beside you. Some of you, it's vice versa. Like, I, I understand. He's obsessed with HGTV. I get it. Like, we, we understand that. But God says the same thing. God says, my house is never finished. Don't ever think that it's finished. It's a home that keeps getting bigger. So I'm going to invite the band to come. And I want to just simply call you to a practical action today, because I think this is so important for us to realize. It sounds like common sense, but I don't think we get it. If we're going to build this house of prayer, listen, don't miss this. I I know, bands moving like, squirrel, stay with me. If we're going to build this house of prayer, if we're going to build this place, if we're going to be the church, and I believe believe we're called to be, where people belong, where people find purpose and destiny, where people find meaning, where they find joy and invitation for all the nations. If we're going to be that house of prayer, For all the nations, this is, ready? This is revealing theology. We have to start to pray. We have to be a house of prayer. Now, listen, some of you are like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm like a bedtime of prayer. That's kind of what I am. I'm like a supper time of prayer. Like, we give thanks at supper, and then we fall asleep in bed, pray. But what if we became a house of prayer? What if we took it seriously as a church to say, you know what? There is a lot, do you know 15% of people in, in our community, in our county, attend church regularly. That's the national statistic. That's where Upshur County falls. I can show you the, the research. That's 85% of the population of Upshur County does not have a church that they attend regularly. Don't tell me that everybody you know goes to church. Go meet some more people. Everybody you like may attend church. Everybody you're comfortable with may attend church. But what about the left-outs, the cast-asides. 85% are not in a place of worship. And I believe that over the next eight to 10 weeks as we approach Easter, this is a season where the culture around us is more open to the gospel than any other time of the year. And so you know what? We better be praying about it. So I wanna ask you as we go into this last song and we're gonna share communion, just what's one name? Just what's one name in your head of a person that you know, you know what? God wants to do something in their life. They need Jesus. They need hope. They need this invitation. They need a place to belong. They need a memorial. And even if it's a person, by the way, that you would go, that's my arch nemesis. That's the person I can't... I I don't know what to... This person makes me uncomfortable. I see this this person all the time, and I I see this person on the street, and I know they need to belong. I know they need it. What is that name? Who is that person? Who is that face? And as we come, as we worship God today, and we sing about God triumphing, we're going to pray for those folks. And I'm asking you this week... Take five to ten minutes every day and just pray for that name. Pray for that face to say, God, what would you do? What would you have me to do? God, open their heart. God, soften their heart. And all you have to do is be faithful to that. All you have to do. So as we worship today, I'm going to invite you to the table.